From the birthplace of modern winemaking, Sonoma, California, welcome to the winemakers. Local experts Sam Katuri, Bart Hansen, and Brian Casey, along with host John Myers, invite you to listen in as they discuss all facets of winemaking. So sit back, pour yourself a glass, and let's hear what the guys have to say this week. Oh, that sounded good. That was a that interesting. Sound, sounded like uh, it sounded like the motivation Bart had to get GW on this episode so quickly yeah, is that he has, <laughs> he brought two different bottles of Shannon Blanc. That's what it sounds excellent. like. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. New well, hashtag GW make Shannon. Yeah. GW make Shannon? <laughs> well, welcome GW Lucier to our podcast. First time on a podcast. First huh? time on a podcast. Well, welcome to yeah, the winemakers. Yeah, I'm John you so Myers. Much. You know Sam Katuri and Bart Hansen. Brian is on assignment. Secret yeah. assignment. Secret assignment deep in the Deep in the vaults of the Fairmont Sonoma let's, Mission let's Inn. Hope. They haven't let him out in weeks. We have, it's been a while since I, he texts every once in a while. So clearly they have a, they give him a phone and a charger down there, but right. I don't think they've let him out. We were just um, <laughs> talking about. Uh, uh, I was I was thinking about how we met GW, and it was down the parking at, lot of Paso Robles. Yeah, Paso Robles, yeah. and 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 he was there, of course, with Jack. Right. Um, from Magnolia, and we should say cheers to Jack. Cheers to Jack. 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 Put it out there on the internet. The yeah, uh, the thing that I learned when I got engaged, and I don't know if you got this part when you were when is they say uh, congratulations to the guy. So congratulations, Jack, and then they say best wishes to Saskia, which basically means good fucking luck. Really Did you guys have a good uh, Father's Day? Um, we did. You know what? So uh, uh, Dane and I went and saw Mike Campbell and the Dirty Knobs. Excellent. At um, how was it? At at uh, the Uptown Theater in Napa. Well, first of all, Uptown is an awesome place to I see like music. It. Yeah. Um, and, and at the last minute, some sixth row tickets popped up that we grabbed. <laughs> Um, and Mike Campbell just shredded the guitar the entire time. It, it, it was awesome. He played a few petty songs and he explained why he was playing them and um, interacted with the crowd really nicely. And uh, it, it was awesome. So that that was my father's day. I had some good good time with Dane. Yeah, and my wife is in Paris, so I had a good day. I mean, I was just <laughs> hanging out with, with the uh, dogs and that's it. And I'm old enough because I, I grew up in Santa Lina in the Napa Valley that uh, my dad took me to movies at the Uptown Theater before oh, it was really? a concert yeah. hall. Okay. Yeah, I think I saw The Mighty Ducks. Right. Play, play oh, at the great. Uptown yeah. Theater. Right. Yeah, it was just a little tiny theater right there. But yeah. it's, uh, I, I mean, I've heard some great, great people like Willie Nelson. Oh, Band yeah. Of Forces, oh, yeah. Right they used to be really active. Um, right. They're just coming back. Yeah, yeah. 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 But, well, but it, Boss it, Cags was there last week. Yeah, I mean, it, 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 great venue, great sound. So, um, and I don't know, it's there's something you know. Dane Dane is not into, um, we're not into the same sort of music. He's got he's really into music, um, and he really likes you know what he likes. Um, but he's also grown up with me, and so he's heard a lot of Tom Petty to say the least, and. Um, he knew who Mike Campbell was from conversations and stuff. And they played a couple songs and I caught him. He was like, he totally knew the song. He ended up having a great time. Um, uh, got into the music. So that's just goes to show that, you know, when it's really good music and it's live, it doesn't really matter if you've seen it or not before. Right. It's just, that's good music. And it's live. That's so, it. Anyway, yeah. Sorry. That was a, 
bit of a tangent. What about you? How was your father's day? So this, uh, I guess technically is my first father's day. My wife and I are expecting our first child in November. So we timed it perfectly. We're going to get through harvest and then it'll be right before Thanksgiving timed and, it. uh, yeah. timed it. And then tomorrow it's our second year. Sounds wedding like the baby's coming early oh, yeah, as well. Congratulations, so, man. Yeah. It's just, right. uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry to talk over you, but, uh, yeah, yeah that, or it's going to be a late harvest. It's going to, well, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. That might be impossible. I've seen some purple grapes. Well, I've seen a lot of purple grapes. In fact, you shot something the other day and put it on. It was yeah, no, I didn't. Yeah, you had something on with some good looking grapes. I'll tell oh, you that. Oh, that was probably something from last year. Last year's grapes. No, yeah, there's definitely some. Well, it's like table grapes and home arbors and yeah. stuff starting to turn color. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's gonna be. It's the solstice tomorrow. It's gonna be 100 degrees. Right. It's summertime. No kidding. Yeah, 100 degrees tomorrow. That's ridiculous. 100 degrees Why? tomorrow. Why did, did just what? decide to do that? Of course, it's across the country, too. Why? Well, it's summertime. Yeah. There's 18 hours of sunlight. There's uh, climate change. Uh, but it just went up so dramatically. Uh, and you back know, down there's days later, the, you that's, know? that's this roller coaster we've been on all summer, all spring long. Was, you know, we'll have, we've had. There was rain. 100 degree days. And then two days later, there was rain. Yeah. And then frost. And then frost. <laughs> and frost. I mean, it's just like, uh, you know. It's been um, a roller coaster of a growing season. The things, you know, it's a broken record if you listen to this show. But what climate change does is, A, you know, you have more extremes. But you also have just more instability. Like the patterns and the expectations of what a time of year is and what the weather is going to be like during that time of year. Um, is all out the window. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's not even. Yeah. I mean, it's it, you have to be ready for everything, right? Totally. And as as a kid, I remember you know going and canoeing on the Russian River in October. But whenever we drove over the hill into Santa Rosa and into the Russian River Valley, it was always rainy. It was always foggy. Now it's like never, always eighty degrees. And it was the same foggy. thing in the Napa Valley. Right. You had that morning fog that from the San Joaquin Bay that was coming in, and you know those cold winds at night when we were playing, you know, Little League and stuff like that. You would just see this this yeah. just this marine layer yeah. getting sucked in from Spring Mountain, and I just don't see it anymore. No. I, I mean, I I think we've probably had more marine layer this year 2022 than we have the past five years um but i think that's just because it's been a lot windier and it right. just happens to blow in right it's not coming here naturally the way it would by temperature the, the change right and, yeah. yeah so anyway um yeah welcome to the welcome to the downers <laughs> no, the no, no, downers. No, no 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 you can't you can't say that you know everybody wants to know that's that's the idea. What's that, going on in the field? That's also what makes you know vintage vintage and making wine so beautiful is that uh, you get one chance every year, and I firmly believe that that's the great thing about it is that it, that's the story of the vintage is told in the wine, and so every single year has a different story, and and that's something that's really incredible, and that's what attracted me to making wine versus beer or or alcohol, where you can just if your batch goes bad, you can just toss it, right? right and right. It's, you know, with wine, it's we get this one shot and uh so you grew up where i grew up in santa Elena. Okay. i was i was born in san francisco um but my parents were tired of the fog so my mom's a san francisco native my dad's from the peninsula in menlo park what uh, high school did your mom go to my mom went to mercy okay. high school 
prior to it closing. Yeah. And my dad went to Bellarmine. Yeah. My, uh, my grandmother went to Mercy. My my dad actually oh. went to high school with Tim Mondavi and Don Sebastiani. Don Sebastiani was boarding at Bellarmine. And uh, my dad asked Don Sebastiani, hey, where are you from? Oh, I'm from Sonoma. My dad had no clue what Sonoma, where Sonoma was. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, so... It, I mean, dating back, I'm, I'm a fourth generation Californian. My great grandmother was born in Yosemite before it was a national park. Yeah. Um, and then she married my grandfather, who was a bootlegger. Okay. And um, I guess back then, Clear Lake, Lake County was a really good destination for. I guess I guess I shouldn't say. Well, I'm just realizing I shouldn't cons I shouldn't refer to my grandfather as a as a moonshiner. He's a bootlegger. Yeah, that's a right. Because so. moonshine is. A specific is what you product right. of a bootlegger, right? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. But a bootlegger also was smuggling stuff uh, like whiskeys in from Canada. Oh, yeah. So yeah, like when I not. when I went to college in Vermont, there's a um, there's a pass called Smuggler's Notch, right. and the reason why they used that pass is in the wintertime, the FBI and the police couldn't get their cars up it because of the snow. So my my uh, great grandfather, yeah, he, he nice distraction. He was. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, he was, I guess he was smuggling whiskey from Canada and then throwing labels uh, on them and selling them. But he had a lot of money and Clear Lake was a destination. So he bought property up there. So my dad, every single summer as a kid, would drive through the Napa Valley because he had to drive through the Napa Valley and go over Mount St. Helena right. to get to Clear Lake. So um, it was in 1985. They were ready to move. They purchased a house in Yonville. Um, they arrived in Yonville and my grandfather back then, this night, Yonville 1985, yeah. he says, this is no place to raise a family because Yonville was a little bit rough around the edges yeah. back then. Now it's a lot more refined, you know, with the French laundry and Bouchon, Bouchon bakery. And yeah. it's pretty much the Disneyland of the Napa Valley. Right. Now it's no place to raise a family. So, so well, we, I mean, there was a time when Yonville, when you drove by, you really noticed the, the trailer park, right? Like the, or the. Well, it was a trucker stop. Right, they, they, like right, the truckers, right, it used to right. be like a bunch of just roadhouses and right. bars, ponchas, you know, like, right. you know, still cash yeah. only. You can still smoke inside of there right. <laughs> because it's a family owned and operated. So they don't have to abide by the California laws. That sounds <laughs> familiar. False, <laughs> but also familiar. <laughs> so we ended up moving to uh, Deer Park, um, which I guess was more suitable to uh, raise a family. And uh, unfortunately the glass fire burnt our house down, but we're rebuilding and we'll be moving uh, back into it. Hopefully this summer, maybe this fall. Yeah. I was going to say deer park was like kind of where the glass fire started. It was right? ravaged. It was yeah. absolutely. Yeah. My parents woke up, they saw the fire and they decided to uh, just leave and go down to the El Bonita motel. And uh, a couple of days later we went up there and there was nothing left. Flat. Yeah. Crazy. Huh. Wow. Um, that sucks. Sorry about that. Just yeah, it's you know, but it, it's it's you know, it's we're going to rebuild and it's going to be better than it was before. Um, so my wife and I will be moving into the the bigger house and then we're building a uh, apartment for my parents, so they'll be able to stay nice. and take care of nice. the kid. And you know, they're now in their seventies, and so we'll be able to you know take care of them and and see them every single day because you know time is precious. Yeah. And so um, it worked out in the end, but it, yeah, it was it was a painful process. But we're lucky that my father in law is in construction and uh, my wife's uncle is also in construction, so they've done all the clearing, the house building, they're doing all of that, and so we're we've been able to make it yeah 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 congratulations yeah. I, I mean especially trying to do it now like right yeah. um yeah good luck yeah well just dealing with the insurance is yeah. is absolute insanity you know they want to give you a flat offer first and foremost and they're hoping that people will take it they don't want to pay out the full amount and so there's just a lot of how, how much of a difference is there are they starting at half 
Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, they're they're trying to lowball you at, at half. And unless you have receipts for everything. Yeah, you have to, especially if you have content, you have to show the content list. You have to show pictures. I mean, we had a, a beautiful piano and a lot of old, uh, you know, Persian rugs that we had to show proof that. We, you we know, had. I just had a requirement from our insurance company that we photograph all this. Stuff. Yeah. Every room and everything is photographed. Yeah. Well, we're recently canceled because of where we live. So they just can't, they straight canceled. They you. just canceled us. So right. we were like, oh, here's a neighbor that hasn't burned yet. Right. Canceled. Right. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so thank you, State Farm, for taking us on. Right. Um, but yeah. So the Crazy. one benefit I have is, um, you know, being a, a former military service member is uh, I'm a member of USAA yeah. and USAA ha is willing to cover the property <laughs> up there. So That's they're, awesome. they're, you know, because they're in Texas and they only have that one place in Texas and stuff like that. I don't think they are aware of, of, <laughs> right. of they haven't figured out that you're a bad investment yeah. yet yeah. <laughs> well good thing they don't listen right. to this yeah uh, hopefully not <laughs> so so you know what why don't we kind of go there then so how did you end up from you you grew up in grew up in saint Helena, mm -hmm. um and then what was after that so yeah uh i was junior in high school and uh, saint Helena high saint Helena high class mm -hmm. of 2003 and um I was a junior at this time and it was a fall semester and uh, chemistry was my first class. I, I remember like it was yesterday. Um, and my dad was getting ready in his room and I was uh, on the other side of the house getting ready in my room. And I heard him yell that we had been attacked. And so I turned on the TV and I saw the, uh, the twin towers burning and uh, I was just, uh, I was just in shock. And I remember showing up to school and sitting in chemistry class, which I absolutely hated chemistry at that at that time. Um, no fault to Miss Rowan. Says the winemaker. Yeah, I, well now <laughs> now it's awesome. I love it, but I just didn't apply it. So we were watching it on TV, and I saw the the buildings collapse, and I just immediately felt a uh, a calling uh, to service. Uh, both my grandfather served. My mom's father was in intelligence. Uh, my sister say that he was in the OSS, but he passed away before sharing any of his stories. So we don't really know much about him. Um, but my dad's father was a P-47 Thunderbolt pilot. Wow. And uh, he would fly out of Corsica and go on bombing runs. And he was actually shot down in the Mediterranean Sea by anti-aircraft guns and sat there for nine hours. Yeah. And uh, in, the, in the water. In the floating. Mediterranean Sea, just floating there. And he just, he prayed that he would get picked up. Um, and he got picked up by a US ship was flying again on missions a week later yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. purple heart recipient what he but does. he he uh would always sit me down and he would uh play this movie called or uh, it's a documentary called uh p-47 uh, uh, a fighter pilots story and so he was really into the service and showing um his experiences uh, of the war so I, I i felt a connection there um but uh, so I went to my dad and I said, dad, I, I really want to go into the service. I'm thinking either the army, I want to be a, a, an army ranger. And uh, this is when like Black Hawk Down had just come out. Saving Private Ryan came out a few years earlier um, and Band of Brothers. So mm -hmm. they have 101st Airborne jumping out airplanes. And I was just like enamored by that. Um, or I wanted to be a Navy SEAL. And he told me, he's like, listen, I totally get it, but you're not going to enlist. You're going to be an officer. So I started looking into the service academies. I looked into West Point and then I looked into the Naval Academy and then I took my SATs and they didn't really go well. That didn't really go well for me. And uh, with my SAT score, um, 
I, I was like, ah, I don't think I'm, I'm going to be able to get into a service academy. So I started looking at the senior military colleges. So I looked at the Virginia Military Institute, the Citadel, which is in South Carolina, and also the Military College of Vermont called uh, Norwich University, which was uh, established in 1819, just six years after West Point was established hmm. by Captain Alden Partridge, who actually, he believed in... At that time, West Point, and it still is an engineering school, but he really believed in the liberal arts and also being a citizen soldier. And so you should be well-rounded and study other things besides just engineering. And he was ostracized for that. So he took, he embezzled some funds from West Point and went Excellent. up to Vermont and started Excellent. his own school. Taking my ball and I'm uh, going home. Exactly. Man, I'm taking your ball and I'm going and I'm somewhere go start my own college, man. <laughs> yeah, he started his own college and it was all uh, designed around liberal arts and being a citizen soldier. And uh, so I was really interested in that and I got accepted and uh, I'd never even visited the school. The first time that uh, the first time I saw the school was day one of Rook Week. So showed up in a maroon hat that said Rook, a white shirt with a black tie, khaki pants and uh, waited for the shark attack uh, to happen. If the parents dropped us off, um, it was just an absolutely just ravaging week of getting yelled at and getting your room tossed. So, and... so you show up dressed. They, they yeah. sent you your shaved head uniform. Yeah. Shaved head. Yeah. Welcome to um, welcome to the wick welcome as the wick. as they they called it or or the hill because it sits on on top of the hill. And uh, I mean, I'll tell you what, a freshman year at a military college is is no joke. I spent more time polishing my boots and using liquid starch to iron my uniforms so that they would stand up. That's how much starch we were using, which sucked when you were sweating because the starch would get all over your legs. Oh. And, uh, but I spent more time just working on my uniform and you had, a, it was a very Spartan lifestyle. Your uniforms had to be a certain way, facing a certain way in a certain order. Your drawers had to have a set amount of t-shirts, socks with a certain size and it was all about attention to detail, which really crossed over into to winemaking. Um, but I mean, if you didn't participate in an extracurricular activity like sports or the mountain cold weather unit from four to seven o'clock, your butt belonged to your cadre. And my cadre had just, some of them had just gone out of Paris Island, uh, or enlisted Marines. One just got back from the invasion in Iraq. So he, you know, he was on edge <laughs> and, uh, if, you know, as a freshman, you had to leave your room open when you were in there and they would just walk in, toss your drawers, toss your bed, and you'd then have to just pick up your room and remake your bed and there. put it all back together. And so I liked not being in my room around four to seven o'clock because also they would just make an announcements. They would do stuff like uniform games where they would give you three minutes to change into one uniform and then give you another couple minutes to change into another uniform. And then that trashed your room because you're just throwing your uniforms all over the place. Right. And so, um, or they would take you and just, you know, it was called a smoke show where they would just, uh, put you through physical fitness for two hours until you're absolutely exhausted. And so it was a rite of passage and they were trying to find weak links, weak links to, you know, to, to quit the school. And a lot of people did, um, and how, how's, how much did the uh, freshman class shrink by sophomore year? Uh, um, I'm going to guess 75%. I mean, I wouldn't, no. have, I wouldn't have made the first day with the tie and no, the shirt. I and think, the, I think the if, you're, if you're going there, you're right. You have, you have a certain level of expectation. Yeah. Right. yeah. There was probably a good 25 to 50 kids. I would mm. say that just weren't mentally prepared for what they're about to go through i mean i tell you what just hearing him say that like my father didn't go to military school went from high school into the marines but he was like a marine right. and, and he was describing 
like I think he learned everything in the Marines or maybe he was that way before, but that was the way our life was, right? Like everything was folded in a certain everything way. Everything sorted and folded, and, and, yep. And so I'm sure you have to already kind of be that way. Like you know what you're getting into to I, some extent. I knew what I was getting into. What I was not, what I didn't know like was we had like shirt stays where you'd pin the shirt to your socks to keep your shirt tucked in. I had never done that before. I'd never ironed before. I, I now iron all my stuff Santa now, Lina. but uh, yeah, it's, it was just, it was more of that stuff that, um, you know, I, I knew that I wanted a ripped pocket. That's for sure. Yeah. I need to sew this, but uh, <laughs> yeah, it was just, a, it was an absolute, uh, it, it the whole purpose of it was to break you down to build you back up. Yeah. But um, I, remember i i just wanted to avoid my cadre and so i'm like you know i heard of this program that the marine corps does because i was in the army department but i didn't know i i could have switched departments i could have switched into the air force i could have switched in the navy or i could have switched into the the marine corps and there was this because my grandfather was a pilot i was really interested in being a pilot as well and so the marine corps had a program called plc the platoon leaders course where you got a guaranteed flight school spot if you made it through marine corps ocs you would immediately go to flight school and it, then the rest was up to you to pass flight school, but at least you had that guaranteed flight school spot. So I wandered down into the basement of uh, Plumley Armory, where the Marine Corps Department was, and none of the Marines, uh, the officers, uh, were there. So I'm thinking to myself, all right, what else can I do to avoid getting yelled at and uh, you know, just avoid my cadre? And so, uh, and at this point. As a freshman, you had to square your corners. So you're walking in some the far right-hand side of the road. It's called the gutter. And you always had to walk in the gutter. And you had when you got to a place where you had to turn, you had to stop and do an immediate right face or left, left face. And you were looking straight ahead. And you had to greet your cadre or officers anywhere you go, but you had to look straight ahead. You couldn't be looking around. And the same thing when we were eating our meals. We had to sit at the fr front six inches of the seat, our chest had to be touching the table we couldn't even stare at our food we had to square our meal so you'd take a little bit of bacon or a little bit of egg you'd bring it up you'd bring it to your mouth and then you had to put your fork back down before you'd start chewing and swallowing your hand your hands had to be in your lap this is the kind of stuff that we had to do but like i said it was a lot of details and it was about listening and following instructions right so i wander into now the basement of jackman hall and lo and behold, I wander into an army recruiter's office. And if you've ever gone into a recruiting office, they just pump you up and everything like that. They're like, you want to be a mountain soldier? You can join the you know, Vermont National Guard. You can be skiing down you know, mountains and shooting your rifle. And it really fired me up. I'm like, yeah, I want to do this. So I went ahead and enlisted at 19 had you ever Had you ever skied before? Did yeah, you grow I, up skiing? I, okay. my dad and mom would take us up skiing okay. to uh, Diamond Peak was always our place yeah, every yeah, single year. So yeah. I'd skied from probably four years old. And then in middle school, everyone was snowboarding. So I switched over to snowboarding. And then I, you know, I found that that was not my style. And so I switched, switched back yeah. over to skiing. But uh, I got fired up. And so I'm like, where do where do I sign? <laughs> and uh, so I signed and I went back home for summer vacation and I go, mom, uh, I enlisted in the army and she had a meltdown because I didn't even talk to her about it. But then she came to the realization that I was 19 years old and uh, that I could make my own decisions. And so I went, I did something called the, uh, the split option program because of college students, the army made a uh, exemption i guess that you would go to basic training one summer and then the following summer you'd go to your advanced individual training but you so could you essentially dropped out of college 
or dropped out of military school? No, not necessarily because there were a lot of students that were in the Vermont National Guard and there was a good relationship between the university and the Vermont National Guard because a lot of the platoon leaders, a lot of the non-commissioned officers, all were cadets at, at Norwich. But if I had gone straight through that training, I would have missed my, my fall semester of my sophomore year. So I did basic training, which was nine weeks long. Uh, the first summer where they sent where they sent you for Fort Benning, Georgia. I was an okay. I, I was eleven Bravo Infantry, and so Fort Benning, Georgia is the uh, now it used to just be the home of the infantry. Now it's the center of uh, maneuver excellence. So the Armor School is there. The Armor School used to be at Fort Knox. Now it's at Fort Benning, and so I went to Fort. It's a big deal down there. What's that? Fort Benning. It's a big deal. Fort Benning is it's hot. It's uh, it's sandy. It's, Georgia, it's wet. Man. It's Georgia, but that's where Airborne School is. That's where Ranger School. Uh, is um, and also the School of the Americas. So a really cool project that we did back back in the probably the 70s or 80s is we realized that if the U.S. government was going to control the future leaders of South America, let's go ahead and set up a military school for their junior officers to come to America, have the American experience. And so when they then get into the positions of being generals or dictators, they've experienced America and they're on our side. So that was a, a, a way that- uh, Interesting we, aspect of it. Yeah. But uh, I, I was at Fort Benning. I did nine weeks there. Then I went back, uh, back to military college and I was a corporal cadre there. And then I had to go back to Fort Benning for AIT, for infantry school, which was another- X amount of weeks. And then um, the National Guard liaison said, hey, if you get a score on your physical fitness test, um, a certain score on your physical fitness test, that you'd get to go to airborne school. So I went to airborne school that same summer and I was a private first class and a I ran into a bunch of buddies of mine who were cadets. But the, the funny thing about being a cadet versus being a private is if I mess up and I screw up, it's like, oh, you're a private, you know, whatever. But if a cadet messed up they they would give them a hard time because it's like you're your our future leaders you're going to be in charge of us one day like right. how can you be messing up right and uh right. so it, going back to i'm not going to call it hazing but uh, initiating initiating yeah. initiation breaking down my you, you can call it hazing could you call it <laughs> yeah um should we take a quick moment a to quick go moment. back to the yeah, wine that we just finished wine. that was delicious thank you yeah so the wine that we just had was um it's a it's an old vine Chenin Blanc vineyard out on uh, Green Valley Road in Solano County. So if you cut through Jameson Canyon and the, you get on I-80 heading towards Sacramento, there's an exit for the Cordelia Benicia exit. And you don't actually get on 80. Right. You just stay in the you stay yeah, in the left yeah. lane. Right? Stay, I stay in the right, right lane. lane. Yeah, 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 you stay in the right lane. And then you take left on Green Valley Road. So this vineyard sits on the Sassoon Bay, the Grizzly Bay, and the San Joaquin Bay. So it has a lot of maritime influence. It does get hot there um, in the summertime. And so that's why we harvested on uh, August uh, 18th, actually at 21 and a half bricks. Uh, came Since in 2020, August 18th, 2020, the yeah. fires really hadn't even started yet. The fire had just, just started. started. Okay. So it was burning over the hill and we got a phone call from the farmer saying, hey, uh, another winery had to evacuate, so we can't pick all the fruit. Uh, can we push it off a day? And I said, absolutely not. We'll pay for the picking crew. So we did, and we got the fruit in, and we hauled it to the winery. The very next day, the fire went over the hill, and all of Solana County was evacuated, and the rest of the fruit was all left lost. To hang, all lost. Wow. So we picked this. Congrats. The, yeah, the day before uh, the county was evacuated, which was a great decision. Yeah. And um, 
Yeah. So it comes into the winery. We destem 75% of it, uh, let it macerate on the skins for a few hours. And then we put the whole cluster in the press first. And then we pour the destem fruit on top. We press it, it goes into a tank to settle overnight. Then it goes into, an, we rack it to a, another tank. When it starts fermenting, we give it a, some nutrients. It goes into neutral French oak barrels into the cold room. And the ferment usually, go, this ferment went for 35 days. Uh, completely dry and then we take it out of the cold room and uh, it goes fully through malolactic fermentation couldn't can we talk about and i know this part, the the stem maceration mm -hmm. uh concept there you know we do that actually for the adutet rosé yeah um but you don't hear about people doing that with white wine or certainly Chen Blanc very often, right? I mean, mostly it's just whole cluster press, right? Yeah. So I, I feel like a little bit of skin contact gives Shannon a little bit more uh, texture. Um, the stems on Chenin Blanc can give a lot of astringency and also tannin, and we wanted to avoid that. Hmm. That's why we keep the stems uh, separate from the, the de-stemmed fruit. But it just gives uh, texturally uh, a little bit more. Um, Wait, so you, you, press the whole, uh, you press the whole cluster, clear the press out, and then put the, no, or you, or you pour no, the juice we, back, we, you pour we, the, the must back in. We put the whole cluster in first, and then the de-stem fruit goes on top, and the stems act as channels so we th that we don't have to add like rice holes to it for the, for the yield. So we just right. want some of the stems in there to, get, to create channels for uh -huh. the juice, yeah. but we really don't want the astringency from, from right. the stems on the right. Chenin Blanc. Huh. And this is a method that I actually picked up when making wine at William Sully, and we did the same thing for the uh, the Chenin Blanc uh, that came up from uh, Vista, San Benito. Vista was, Verde. Yeah, yeah, the Vista Verde vineyards. We, we de-stem. Uh, 75, 80 percent of the fruit macerated on the skins before then putting the whole cluster uh, in the press and then the destem fruit on top. And and that's you know, there was a time where you know dejuicing tanks over presses were so you not only to help you process a lot of fruit quickly, but it was also there were things that you liked some stick, skin contact on, right? And and Shannon was one that you know a little bit was great, but a lot was too much. I mean, too much was way too much. Um, so, uh, I think people, you know, this is probably more common in Shannon than a lot of other things. Interesting. Okay. Um, you know, uh, semi on maybe a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. people mess around with it. So was that where you got turned on to Shannon was your time at William Selliam? I got turned on to Shannon Blanc. Um, one, it's a, it's a varietal that a lot of people can't find. And I like being different than just do, be, making Pinot Noirs and, and Chardonnays. I wanted to, plus my family comes from the Loire. Uh, the French side of my family, and so the Lucier side, of the your Lucier family? side of the family, yeah, uh, came from the Loire and settled in Quebec in the 1600s. But uh, I digress. But uh, it, what really turned me on to Chenin Blanc was a bottle of Domaine de la Tour Alou uh, Mont Louis. Um, it was a monopole, and uh, I was pouring Pinot for William Siam at the Fairlawn Hotel when the Fairlawn actually existed. It closed during the pandemic. And we went to uh, High Treason in the mm -hmm. Richmond District. Mm -hmm. And that's where I had that bottle. And it was a it was a transcending bottle of Chenin Blanc. I just was like, this is what Chenin should be. And this is what a great wine is. And uh, I always have that, that taste in that bottle uh, in my mind. And the thing is, it's also a less expensive grape varietal. And um, it's an approachable, uh, approachable uh, bottle price. I mean, you can buy... Um, Shannon's from the Loire for $45, $50. I mean, that's a great price point. And so that really turned me on to Shannon. And um, I was just very curious of, of making it when I decided to start the Lucier wine label. And uh, I was lucky enough to, on my honeymoon, uh, 
Sean Adamovich, uh, who you've met, sent me an advertisement. This was posted on uh, Wine Business, or not Wine Business. Uh, yeah. yeah. The, the classifieds. Yeah. 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 And um, it's organically formed. Friend of the pod. Yeah. Planted in the 1970s. Um, and I get all the fruit from it. So they didn't want to deal with multiple winemakers. And so I said, I'll take, I'll take all the fruit. And um, yeah, it's been a great partnership and we're continuing to uh, So that's the, make the Jurassic or no, the Solano County? No, the, the Solano County. The Jurassic right. Park we made last year, but I was unable to secure a contract this okay. year. And so it's a, it's a one-off, um, but was able to make contact this last year. And uh, we kind of teamed up with uh, Leo Hansen of Leo Steen mm-hmm. to right. ship the fruit up. It didn't even show up until... When did we harvest this? We harvested it on uh, October 13th. Wow. And the truck. Go ahead. No, the truck showed up, and the deal was is that we had to take the bins, dump them into other bins because they wanted their bins back, quickly clean them, and then put them back on the truck because we were getting you know, charged by the hour for the, the trucker. Whoa. And um, so it went into a cold room overnight, and then it's the same process, except we t- because it was so late in the season, we did native yeast, and we tank fermented this because I wanted to be able to, if the, the ferment started getting sluggish, to hook a tank heater up and heat it, heat it up. Um, so it was a, like a different trial. This was when I first started making the Shannon, the the wines at William Summit that we're making were really reductive. And I didn't know if it was from the varietal. I didn't know if it was from the yeast that we were using. So I decided to use a commercial yeast uh, that produces late, uh, low H2S or dihydrogen sulfides. And uh, it, that's the way it turned out. But I also now realize that our native yeast at Motion Vineyards, where we where we make the wine, is uh, making an incredibly expressive wine, like the Jurassic Park that we're enjoying right now. And so, yeah, totally you know, we're still things. we're still trying yeah. to figure it out. This also came the Jurassic Park uh, from 2021 uh, came in with a lot of botrytis, which I totally embraced. I was like, botrytis, no barat, bring it on. And so, but that's, it's it's funny because if. If anything, I would have never thought that because it shows no like sweetness or honeyness. It's just it's the steeliness and the minerality that just stands out mm-hmm. with this wine. It's crazy. And this so, and like a like a muskiness to it. Yeah, it's yeah, totally intriguing. Yeah. It's um, yeah, it's it's two different expressions of Chenin Blanc from two different great sites. One's on alluvial soils on, in a maritime environment. Um, but the Jurassic Park on limestone soils, but closer to the ocean, and it's a colder environment, uh, and it's a coastal environment. Um, but there's a common thread between both of them, and both go through uh, fully go through uh, malolactic fermentation as well. For for comparison's sake, you picked the the Solano County. I mean, obviously it's a different year, twenty. Yeah. At twenty one and a half. Correct. On, on in you know mid August. Correct. Second one came in basically two months later. Obviously different vintage, but two months later. At well, 20 and a half bricks. It's 11.9% <laughs> alcohol. I rounded up to 12. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, that also makes sense for some of the way it's taste also. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. They're both delicious. I, I Yeah. I absolutely love um, making Chenin Blanc. We've actually had people try to buy out our contract in Solano County and be like, oh, they're paying this much? Well, we'll offer you yeah, this I much. I think he's probably in that office behind you over there. <laughs> Two offices over. Two offices. Sorry, I, <laughs> I was like, wait, guilty by friend. guilty by wall space. by by neighboring. Yeah, yeah by neighboring. Yeah. Um, Shout out Jolbert. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, in Mistburt, because right. we know she she's probably, the one who listens. Right, she probably listens. <laughs> well, um, Doctor Natalie, I can never yes. pronounce that last name. <laughs> Doctor Natalie Z. 
Um, well, they're both delicious. Um, well done. I appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, we're. I just love making it. It's a. It's a fun. It's a fun project. It's unfortunate that we're not going to be able to get to the Jurassic Park for this upcoming year, but we'll try again. Yeah. But I mean the. This is this is the original. This is one of our, the the Solana County is one of our cornerstones of of the wine label, and um, it was the first time I had ever made Chenin Blanc um, by myself. And uh, yeah, it's really fun, and we hope to continue to do it because I really like having a, a white wine to complement our our Pinot Noirs that we make. Can you talk any at all about the label? Is this a like old etching that was? you know no copyright or is it something that you had done i own the copyright to this this wine label it was done by a gentleman named Stephen noble he lives in petaluma he's done a, actually a lot of wine labels a lot of liquor labels um he's if you have a new american express card he redrew the i think it's a spartan on the american express card mm-hmm. uh if you buy bank the new banquet beer from coors that that new steel etching style that he did he was the one who did that um and so the label is a, a representation of our family. So um, my wife's family uh, raises all their own uh, meat. So we raise all of our own beef, all of our own um, pigs, uh, sh- sheep, goats, chickens. Where? Uh, in Santa Elena. Mm-hmm. So my father-in-law uh, was born in, I th- he was born in Knights Valley or San- he was born in San Elena Hospital, but then moved out to Knights Valley as a kid. And then his parents purchased this nine acre parcel right next to Casa Nuestra. Mm-hmm. Um, so he, it's in between Casa Nuestra, Rombauer's right down the street, and then Chateau Boswell's across, uh, across the road. And he refuses to plant uh, vines to it. So um, he has nine acres where he, ra- you know, we raise all of our own meat, we grow all of our own vegetables. If, uh, at the end of the season, we'll we'll pickle all of our own vegetables. We can our own tuna. Um, so that's an ode to the, the fun- like an olive oil or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And uh, and then we also we hunt. So during hunting season, unfortunately, deer season is in August and September. And with making now Chenin Blanc and Pinot and the weather getting warmer, I, I can't hunt anymore. But my wife uh, is, uh, she's adamant that she's still going to be archery hunting and, and uh, uh, rifle hunting on, when she's seven, eight months pregnant. Yeah. Wow. Um, <laughs> but the the um, the actual rack that's on the wall is the first deer I ever uh, harvested. And my wife actually mounted it for me doing the old European style. And then the barrels that are on the label are the first three uh, new French oak barrels that I purchased uh, from Le Fabrique Eric Millard. Um, so all my Pinots go into Eric Millard barrels. My sister, who still lives in Germany, um, she took my wines back to Germany and then drove into uh, Burgundy and dropped, you know, spent an afternoon with him and he tasted uh, our wines and he actually custom makes the barrels uh, with the select wood that he wants from the force that best complement the the wines that we make. So Sweet. it's a it's an absolute collaboration and he's a one person show. He makes three barrels a day and he's a true artist and a carpenter and, uh, and that's who we want to work with. We want to work with, uh, you know, artists, uh, farmers that really believe in giving back to the soil that farm organically or biodynamically um all of the wines that we we're drinking today and that we make uh are are dry farmed organically farmed uh, or biodynamically farmed cool yeah so to back up a little bit here um what was the first what we could probably go down um two shows about experiences in the military yeah um uh, can you kind of give us a little bit of a brief, like get you through the military, you yeah. know, anything you want to speak to that, please. 
And then, and then, you know, how did you find yourself all of a sudden as an intern in a winery? Yeah. So, um, make a long story short, let's fast forward to senior year. Um, originally, you know, getting back, you know, I decided to go army and I was really interested in flying helicopters and I'd passed my, uh, the flight exam, my flight physical. And it was one of those years that the army needed helicopter pilots. So if you put aviation down as your preferred branch, you were going to get it. And I remember having the list in front of me and it has all the branches and you rank them one through 16 or one through 12, how many branches, because the army's completely changed since, since I was in, uh, and the structure. And, uh, I decided to put infantry that I just, I really wanted to be on the ground. I wanted to fight. Um, and this is in 2007. So this is when the surge in Iraq is happening. This is when Afghanistan is starting to kick off again. Um, and so, uh, I got branched infantry and then I went back down to Fort Benning, Georgia to go to infantry school as an officer this time. And then, um, all infantry officers get the opportunity to go to ranger school and, uh, ranger school is one of the, it's, it is one of the most difficult experience, probably the difficult, most difficult experience in my life. Um, it was probably my best individual achievement as well as team. You haven't achievement. worked a rainy harvest at a custom crush place yet. <laughs> Yeah. 61 days, 120 pounds on your back. And you're, uh, you're walking the total distance between Boston and New York city. That's how they, it's about 180 miles total that you actually walk. And, um, you, they, it's a leadership school, but they, they are simulating combat stress. And the way that they're able to simulate combat stress is by not feeding you and by you not sleeping. And so you have to, work with people that don't want to do anything because they're tired and they're hungry. You start hallucinating and you start talking to trees like I did. I fell asleep one day on a road, woke back up and I didn't know where anybody else was because they would continue to walk on. Um, but it was an, it was an incredible achievement. I mean, it's 61 days. It's uh, only about a quarter of the students pass. Um, I started with a class of 440 and graduated with a class of 111. Um, but then I went to Fort Riley, Kansas to be in the first infantry division. I was in the first battalion, 28th infantry regiment. And my battalion commander wouldn't give a platoon leader position to anybody that did not have a ranger tab. And so just being awarded that, uh, that tab, uh, was fundamentally part of my success in the military. So I started off as a mortar platoon leader. So every battalion has an organic, uh, mortar platoon so that's 120 millimeter mortars 81 millimeter mortars and 60 millimeter mortars um and when i go ahead well it's amazing to me that like mortars have to be one of the oldest weapons the military's had right i mean mortars have been around since probably the 15 16 maybe 1400s right you know and uh and that's a lot of it's still still part of it it's still part of it Yeah. yeah lobbing lobbing a bunch of you know, mortar rounds downrange yeah. and stuff like that. So deployed, it's, it's a smaller, it's a smaller, uh, platoon. Um, usually platoons are about 32, uh, people Mortar platoon is usually about 28, I would say. So we deployed to Iraq in summer of 2009, um, 130 degrees outside. And, uh, as a mortar platoon, we were doing a lot of, um, EOD, uh, escort, and then um, about midway through the deployment, just for the 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 dragon EOD is basically the bomb squad, right? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, explosive ordnance. Uh, what's uh, that? What was that movie? Uh, the Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker. Yeah. Okay. 
Uh, but that movie's not really accurate. You never have an EOD team just going out by themselves, ro- rolling around, and then jumping on a sniper rifle and, and engaging enemy, right? Wait, Usually. Hollywood versions of <laughs> combat isn't Sam. real? Yeah. <laughs> what are you thinking, man? It really wouldn't have changed my life one way or the other. <laughs> I wasn't going. Uh, you know, so midway through uh, that deployment in Iraq, uh, I finally needed to move on to um, my career development. And so I took over a rifle platoon um in blod slash samara uh iraq and the big threat up there was uh rkg3 so an rkg3 is like a potato masher uh grenade uh and the soviets developed it um as an anti-tank weapon so we'd throw it and a parachute would engage and then it would shoot an efp and efp is a explosively formed penetrator and it, would, it was a tank killer and it would actually shoot through the tank and it would destroy the tank from the top down. Well, some genius had the idea, hey, let's cut out the parachutes and let's just throw them at U.S. soldiers as they drive down the road. So actually, my platoon was inspecting a, uh, a polling site because the, the big concentration in Iraq back then in 2009, 2010 was having fair elections to elect their their, their government. And uh, my platoon, the rear truck was hit with a RKG3, a 12-year-old kid threw it at us and it took out luckily it, it went through a, a radio block um some shrapnel hit my medic and uh, our gunner but everyone was okay but that was uh, a near miss experience uh in iraq so then i took over as uh after my platoon leader time i was an executive officer and a company executive officer as a first lieutenant is uh required to be the logistician of the entire company so i was responsible for redeploying back to Kansas, uh, my entire company and uh, rifle company, that's probably 150 soldiers. So I was dealing with inspections from Navy customs. I was dealing with, uh, inspections from the coast guard and getting the, uh, the company back safely with all of our equipment accounted for. Um, because there's a lot of money that your company commander is, is signed for. Um, so got back from Iraq and I decided my sister who was living in Europe decided, Hey, let's do a family vacation. Let's go to Champagne. So I went to Champagne for the first time and, you know, growing up in the Napa Valley, uh, as a kid, I didn't have the, my, my dad was a food broker and my mom was a teacher. And so I didn't have really the appreciation. I knew when harvest was coming. I knew that, you know, I knew when people, my friends, dads were growing beards, that it was harvest season and everything. Um, but Apparently I, it was harvest season always. In my <laughs> it's always right. Um, but it was is I, I didn't have an appreciation for it. And I really took it for granted. And so when I went to Champagne in 2010, I remember uh, my sister who speaks French, she studied at the University of Bordeaux when she was back in college. And uh, she was talking to a local guy at the farmer's market. And he said, hey, you need to go to this guy's house. Uh, he gave us the address. And next thing you know, we're driving through a residential neighborhood. And it's this guy with his son building a, a cellar out of cinder blocks. And my sister inquires, hey, is this this wine label and and uh do you make champagne he goes yeah come on back so we're in the backyard and um we're, you know there's britney spaniels running around and the wife's just bringing out like unlabeled bottles of champagne and that experience and then following that experience going up to hovier and doing the same thing going to these backyards with these families of these small producers i really realized the beauty of hospitality and what winemaking is all about and it's bringing people into your home and sharing uh, a wonderful thing that you've created right and so that really stuck with me. And I was really interested in making sparkling wine. I really was. And then I realized that if I was going to start my own wine label and I was going to make the spark- sparkling wine the way that I wanted to do it, I would need about seven years of capital because I wouldn't be releasing my wines for about seven years, right? So, Chris Cottrell. 
how's, that, how's, how's that going in the meetings with the accountants and Morgan, Chris? <laughs> we'll, we'll be having you on here in, in about two weeks. Oh, two weeks. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. next month, but it is two weeks. Right. Time, means, time means nothing, John. So that experience in Champaign really, really stayed with me. And it, that is, I think, where I was really bit by the wine bug. Do you remember Again. the name of that label, that first backyard tasting? I don't. No. I don't. I regret it. Yeah. That's something I really, really, really regret is is that I wish I held on some bottles. I really wish that I documented that because um yeah, we were just having we just started to have phones in our pockets in those days. Yeah. To, to, <laughs> uh, I think I still had a flip phone back right. then in twenty ten. You just got out of freaking Iraq yeah. and then you ended up in champagne. Yeah. Yeah. You're you know, you were there. <laughs> so um after so now I'm a captain. I was promoted to a captain, and so you have to go back down to Fort Benning to go to something called the Captain's Career Course, and it's almost a year long course. Uh, I would say um, and this is 2012. This is in 2010 to okay, 2011, 2010. and uh, because I was stationed in Fort Riley, Kansas, when I met with my branch manager and I said, "Hey, where were you stationed?" Oh, I was stationed in Fort Riley, Kansas. Like, oh, sorry about that. It wasn't that bad. Kansas City is actually a really awesome town, and it was only about an hour and a half away. But he's like, we're going to give you your first choice of wherever you want to go. And so it was, I was deciding between Alaska, Hawaii, or Europe, Germany. I chose Germany because I wanted to travel through Europe. And so I, was, I left for Germany in September of 2011. And I lived as a single officer. Uh, I couldn't live on post because the housing on the actual base was for married families with children. And so the government paid for me to live in this cool, cool old apartment on a cobblestone street in this town called Sulzbach Rosenberg. I had three breweries in my town. Um, there was a bar that was built in 1088 or something that like my electrician invited me to it was only open on Fridays. Um, I participated <laughs> in the Kirva. Like I really embraced and was deep in that culture, but I also would travel to Paris. I would travel to Prague. Um, right. And I really started getting into wine with with when I was going to restaurants uh, in, in those areas, and I was doing uh, tasting menus, and I uh, I just I started really gaining an appreciation uh, for it, and so uh, then uh, in twenty was 2012 or 2013 as a company commander now so i'm in charge of 177 soldiers i'm signed i probably have in my inventory 180 million dollars worth of equipment and we deployed to kandahar casual kandahar kandahar iraq and uh at this time kandahar um we were starting to close bases but we were still um i was responsible my company was uh responsible for patrolling the um Dand District. And the Dand District is on the western side of the Kandahar airfield and it goes all the way to the Horn of Panjway. And the Horn of Panjway is separated by two rivers. And that area is the home of the Taliban. So that was the Taliban's uh, strong point. So we were still getting attacked. And back then, um, we would, our job, our mission was to prevent rocket attacks on Kandahar airfield. So we were doing air, patrol, uh, presence patrols, area denial. We were working with. Uh, an organization with the Air Force called Task Force Black, um, which was Air Force uh, Criminal Investigation Detachment. So we were doing raids with them um, on people that were suspected on conducting attacks or facilitating attacks on the airfield. And then I was also working with uh, Second Ranger Battalion and facilitating security and transportation of the Second Ranger Battalion guys as they uh, were doing more uh, high-profile attacks and targeting. Um, so. Oh, really active, a lot of missions. Um, the scary thing with Afghanistan where we were is the tactic that the enemy was using at that time was um, 
we were using metal detectors to detect uh, minefields, but then they got clever and they were starting to make mines made out of wood. So we had to have dogs going out with us. But a lot of people were finding that we had to walk in a single file row so that if a mine was set off, um, we weren't all in the middle of a minefield because what was happening was when people were doing a regular formation called a wedge formation, which is pretty much the flying V for lack of a better term. Ducks, ducks fly together. Yeah, ducks fly together. Um, next thing you know, you'd have people stepping on mines and they were just taking off ankles. They weren't like, they, they were little tiny things, but then you would be in the middle of an ambush and you were also in the middle of a minefield. And so every step that you took was, um, you know, you're thinking, hey, is this next step going to be the one that sets it off and then you're getting attacked, right? So, um, yeah, we dealt with uh, that and, uh, you know, we dealt with uh, a few other things, uh, suicide bomber. Um, set himself off uh, on, on a, a buddy of mine, and he was pretty much essentially a, a human claymore, and uh, which just shot ball bearing glass nails. And uh, my buddy took it through the throat, um, but he he survived. He got evacuated, and he he survived. But yeah, it was a, it was a it was a gnarly time. And so uh, when I got back from Afghanistan, I decided to resign my commission. I was just not enjoying it anymore. I so done how many it for seven years, years. Total? Seven. Seven years. Seven years total to combat deployments, yeah. and. Um, so I got out and I was thinking of what I was going to do. And I remember I was out processing and there was a magazine with this hard hat diver on the cover. And I'm like, oh, this looks interesting. And so I decided uh, to go to Jacksonville, Florida after getting out of the army. And I went uh, for eight months to hard hat diving school. So I was cutting underwater, welding underwater, surface to air, uh, got certified as a scuba dive instructor, also trained as a, a diving medic. And I thought I had a job lined up when I got out at on uh, Mare Island in Vallejo. And uh, unfortunately, the, they weren't hiring. And so I needed to find a job. So I moved back for the first time since graduating high school. I'd moved back and I was living with my folks at the age of 30. After uh, two combat missions. Yeah. Right. yeah. Two, two combat deployments. <laughs> Did your mom make you fold school, the socks like Germany? No, okay. no. But they were still treating me like I was 12. Uh, from my perspective, it was just like, Hey, you want, you know, do you want something to eat? Going shopping? Do you need string cheese? Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Um, and I couldn't find, I couldn't find work. I started, and I, I, at this point I was, I was looking at, and this is, this is what, 2013, 2014, 2014, 2014. Um, and, uh, I just started dating my wife, um, when I got back and, uh, I was unemployed. I couldn't, I couldn't find any work. And I just decided at that point, I'm like, wait a second, I'm back in the Napa Valley. This place is absolutely gorgeous. You know, I, I, I fought for the American dream. I want to live this American dream. And, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the wine industry is calling my name. You know, I was bit by the wine bug back in Champagne and maybe this is what the universe is providing me. So I start sending out resumes, right. To just all these people just on, and I get nothing back. I'm hearing from nobody, not even like, I mean, Hey, we received that, it of that year. Yeah. You know, right. I mean, <laughs> Back then, getting an internship was hard. Now it's right. hard finding interns, right? right. right. And uh, so... And I, your resume probably terrified people. Yeah, my resume probably right. did. Ter- it was nothing yeah. but military experience. Nothing but military. Yeah. And, yeah, you know. Um, I know some, people would have hired you in a moment just seeing, oh, yes, I am. Right. Well, but, everything happens right. for a reason. I'm sitting here because of all the decisions yeah. that we've made. So, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's not a bad gig. And you know, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And so... Um, but what I did when I finally got into a position of hiring people, well, wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah, wait a minute. Oh, yeah, yeah, where'd you so, get hired? So where did you get hired? So, so, oh, hold on. Hold so, on. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I, I'm just, I'm going to segue a little bit okay. that when I finally got it, I promised myself when I would get into a position where I was going to be hiring people, no matter what, I would at least give the person a phone call 
that applied yeah. and have a conversation with them. And the rest was up to them. But I, that experience really drove me to, I, I know how I want to treat people when it comes to, uh, you know, having a conversation and hiring people. So anyways, getting back to, I'm unemployed. So I reach out to Sonoma County Meat Company. They had a position open and uh, I got a job as a butcher retail uh, for a few months making minimum wage. And I was commuting over the hill over Mark West Springs from, from Santa Lena over to Santa Rosa every single day. But I was, you know, my paychecks that I was getting, I'm like, I can't survive off of this. Right. So, uh, I don't know if you guys ever played or heard of the uh, bocce ball league in Santa Lena and crane park, but my wife girlfriend at the time was uh, on a team. So she asked me if I wanted to be part of the team. And so I said, yeah, so I was playing bocce ball and, uh, Matt Peterson, who was the cellar master at Paul Meyer winery, He's now the assistant winemaker at, at Staglin Winery, um, was on our team. And so I had him, <laughs> I had him, uh, he was having a conversation with somebody about him trying to find interns. And so I said, hey, um, I'm really interested in an, an internship, if you, if you don't mind. And uh, he's like, yeah, send me your resume. So I sent him my 100% military resume, but he understood because his dad was in the army. So he was, was all about it. And um, I remember getting hired, and this is in 2015. It was uh, July 6th was my first day at Palmire. And I was working with Kale Anderson, mm -hmm. uh, who, the winemaker of Kale Wines as well. And uh, yeah, shout out to the, Kale. The uh, winner of the Black Wine Guy uh, uh, Hospice Daron auction item, yes. which included a bunch of... For some reason, Kale, who lives in Napa, went to Paso to buy an auction item that had Dane Sellers in 16600 in it. <laughs> really? <laughs> and he paid an he exorbitant paid. amount of yes. money for it. It was, uh, it, it was it's it's for, all, for the kids. For the, it's for the, it's, yeah, for, for the cause. I, Thank you, Kale. Kale, Kale is absolutely amazing. He, um, he really took the time to just explain things and, uh, you know, that weren't overwhelming. And he just, he really, he really cared and he really, um, took the time to really have interactions with the interns, which was super great. And, um, so I knew then after the Palmire uh, internship, I said, you know, this is, this is something that I really want to be doing for the rest of my life as, as a second career. And, um, something that really, kind of set the way for me starting my own wine label was uh he had the interns make rosé he's like hey you can do it in a team you can do it individual uh, in, you know as an individual but i want you to take the saunier from the fruit that we were sorting in and make a carboy or a barrel or whatever of, of rosé and so the rosé that i made one and so that that started the wheels turning of like oh if well, I can. do you remember what the juice was oh it was, it was like just like a random saunier it was like blend. It was a Cabernet Sauvignon that like came in at 28 to 30 bricks or something, you know, just high octane. And uh, yeah, so, you know, how to do the water addition. I didn't know what I was doing, but I guess it turned out okay. So, <laughs> a little water, a little acid, and a little, <laughs> a little bit of luck. Yeah, a little bit of luck. That's all you need. Uh, it was it was very rustic. I, I, I wish I had a, a bottle of it still, but the rest of it, uh, the rest of the inventory burnt in the fire. But my dad was loving it. He was popping corks every single night drinking that rosé. It, <laughs> awesome. it was it was, na it was natty. It was cloudy. It, like I said, I don't even know if it had sulfur in it. Um, let's jump back to yeah, the two yes. wines here. So we just tasted I the, try the, second the 19 Cote de, uh, Cote de Boont. Yep. And now we're going to do the 20. Um, so the, the Cote de Boont is a is a play 
on the Cote de Bone, and Boont means uh, Boonville and Boontling. So for you that people that don't know, Boonville, back in the late 1800s, they established a p- pigeon language of about 3,000 words so they could talk crap about outsiders. And uh, it still lives on today. Probably there's only about 100 speakers. They used to teach it in third grade at the local elementary school. I'll, I'll <laughs> add a link to the um, dictionary. Okay. Um, to the to the, to the show notes. Ross Kennard, actually... Um... He's a, a well, he's, a, he's a he's studied linguistics in college, and his like main thesis was on Boontling. So he's a a boon, a boon speaker. Yeah, he's a boon speaker. Man. Yeah. So I, I came up. I, I was trying to figure out an Appalachian blend when I first started the wine label. I first committed to four tons of Roma's Vineyard, um, and we'll get into that in a little bit. But um, then Susie Carroll of Roma's Vineyard, who's married to Dean. Uh, who farms the vineyard, reached out to me and said, hey, there's a gentleman named Justin Miller, Garden Creek Vineyards in Geyserville. He has a small little vineyard in Philo. Would you like to take some fruit? And I go, you know, that wouldn't be a bad idea because trying to sell you know, four, a wine that I made from four tons of a single vineyard is going to be a lot. And I really wanted to have an approachable Appalachian blend. And so I decided to pick up three tons of that fruit. And so there's a select barrels, a barrel selection that I make that goes into the, the uh, Cote de Boone. But it's a blend of two different vineyards. Uh, one is off of high up, high elevation, 1,860 feet of Roma's Vineyard at Peachland Road, which is right outside of Boonville. And it's uh, located, the Anderson Valley has not gone into sub-Appalachians yet. Everything is still the Anderson Valley. But there's a big push to uh, sub uh, have a sub Appalachians like the Eastern Ridge, Polico, which is Philo, Boonville, the Deep End, uh, and the Western Ridge because those all the wines have so different di- expressions. So different, so different right? Yeah. So uh, the Roma's Vineyard is uh, high elevation, Eastern Ridge, and then Golden Fleece is at 900 feet, and it's on the it's still technically Eastern Ridge, but it's right on the border of Polico because it is in Philo. So it's in this little notch in a little bowl right there and so the clones uh romas is 100 percent pomard and then the clones that come from golden fleece are uh 115667 and uh calera clone so shout out to josh jensen by the way um oh, yeah because yeah calera winery right there you're getting down on I'm that getting the i'm inspired you know a couple couple of dead shows and i want to bend some notes you know uh, absolutely <laughs> Good shows, Sam. Great shows. Totally two very different nights. Uh, two nights at Shoreline. First night was like they walked onto stage in the middle of a second set uh, with like St. Stephen, William Tell's overture into the 11 and kind of like kept it there. And there's like weird dark space all night. Death Don't Have No Mercy. Uh, extended Dark Star into El Paso, which is, you know, tragic song into... Uh, first sing me back home that dead and company had ever done uh and then um back into dark star so that was like 45 minutes of just fucking weirdness uh acoustic el paso bobby picked up a acoustic guitar highlight night one was um was ripple acoustic encore john mayer just like melted a, an, acu- an acoustic guitar solo was, that was rad and the second night was like classic Grateful Dead show, you know, first, you know, first set, second set, Terrapin Station, mm-hmm. um, you know, it was, it was a great show. Good cool. times. Cool. Yeah. Great photos. And then great photos. Uh, we had great seats. We were close, but not behind 
Bill, Luke, and younger Walton brother. Yeah. Uh, so you know you get to see them, but they don't have to stand behind them, right. which is fantastic because I can't see They're behind. Tall. I can't. I can't see the stage behind normal heighted people. So standing behind, you know, an uh, NBA Hall of Famer, not really <laughs> my preferred way to see a show. Stairs. You always like the stairs. Yeah. Give me. Yeah. Give me some. Stand on the chairs. Uh, that was yeah, Bill Graham says you can do anything you want, just don't stand on my chairs. Right. Uh, so good shows, and then my parents kept going. They just got back from uh, two nights in Boulder, um, which were fantastic shows. So if you want to look those up on the interwebs. Yeah, yeah I sent you uh, the jams this morning. From oh yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I didn't. I didn't pull that up yet, but uh, it's really good. I listened to uh, Franklin's Tower. All right. Frank, the Franklin's was really good. Dear Mister Fantasy uh, into. Uh, a Hey Jude reprise. I saw that. That That's what went right into Franklin. Right into Help Slip Frank. I'm yeah. Slipknot. Yeah. G W. How deep are you in the Grateful Dead? Am I speaking? Is, is this no, is like when no. you were mentioning army stuff, and I'm like, oh yeah, I don't know what the hell he's talking about, or am I? Am I, I know, speaking a language? Key on, key on a couple words, yeah. and then I'm not as deep into the Grateful Dead as you are, but my dad, my dad, <laughs> Hello? my dad. Um, I remember he had a vinyl record uh, collection and he had this great record player, old Fisher speakers in his mm. office. Terrapin Station was one of the first records I pulled out. And so he had all the Grateful Dead stuff. And my cousin is when whenever we went up to the lake house on Clear Lake, that's all we listened to was Grateful Dead. So, yeah, mm. I, I definitely have. A, so, you know, where I'm coming from. Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> and, you know, I really like I, I'm really into like. Trampled by Turtles is one of my favorite bands, and they're okay. a, they're a bluegrass band from Duluth, Minnesota. And I, when I listen to the Grateful Dead, and I listen to Trampled by Turtles. I there's there's that still that bluegrass thread. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. from from the Grateful Dead. That's so where it started. Yeah, 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 absolutely love them. Bob, yeah. Jerry was a banjo player. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so um, both those wines are delicious. I Cote mean, Cote de Boone. I mean, I love the fuck. The name is fantastic. Yeah. Cote de Boone. Yeah. If if you care about. Pinot Noir and California history, you need at least five bottles of Cote Boot in your right, cellar. Right. <laughs> Maybe six. Make it easy. Make it easy for you to ship it to you. Yeah, we only have, uh, so we're sold out of the 2019. We probably, I have 42 cases of the 2020 left, but uh, uh, Bacchus and Venus and Sausalito uh, is about to pick up a big order for their wine club. So we're probably down to 20 cases of it after that. Um, but we're going to continue to make it. And I picked up Signal Ridge Vineyard, which is actually Mendocino Ridge, um, but another high elevation which, site. Which, but that is a sub-appellation. Mendocino, Mendocino Ridge, Ridge right? is not. It's a separate a separate appellation, but the percentage that I'm adding into the Cote de Boone it won't. So it's be a standalone it is. Um, appellation. It is. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay, cool. I, I was just... I, I wasn't sure how that worked. a lot of stuff was grandfathered in when the Appalachians were created. Right. So technically the Eastern Ridge, like after a certain elevation should also be considered the Mendocino Ridge. But because of this weird grandfather clause, the Eastern Ridge isn't included in the Mendocino right. Ridge, but the Western Ridge is. Huh. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. So, yeah, we're going to continue to uh, have the Cote de Boone. And the nice thing is it's a, it's a really approachable uh, Pinot Noir, young. I, I think you can age it for five to ten years without a problem. But it's also at a really approachable, reasonable price point. Um, you know, for people. Well, should we do a quick um, plug on how to find you and buy your wine? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, the best place to buy our wine is on our website www.lucier.lussier wineco.com wineco wineco.com wineco so okay. the name of the wine or, or the business is lucier wineco but the name of the label is lucier and that gives me if we decide to do any further projects like if we decided to 
deep dive into some rones later on. We can change the label, but still have the, the business. And um, our biggest supporters right now, I mean, if you ever find yourself up in, in Boonville, Wendy Lamar of the Disco Ranch just always has all of our wines, uh, always stocked. She's been a great supporter uh, of our wines. Um, the Urban Wine Group, or, or sorry, Urban Kitchen Group down in uh, Orange County also uh, carries our wines. Um, but the best place is is definitely on our website. And you know we ship everything right out of the Adam Street shipping store uh, in Santa Elena, and my wife t- takes care of all of that. And so, yeah. And I, I remember the memories are fuzzy because it was uh, the last night of Hospice to Rhone after the mm-hmm. second five-hour, nine-hour, 10-hour tasting, whatever we did. Uh, plus, we are in the parking lot, um, fill in the blank. Um, there's a... There's a charitable aspect to all of these or no? There's some like... Yeah, there some, is. Some charity work you do, right? Yeah, so we work, we're a sponsor of an organization out in Montana called Heroes and Horses. It was started by a Navy SEAL named Micah Fink. Um, and he takes, it's a, you have to go through a really strong, like intense application process, but, uh, he takes at risk veterans, um, who are at risk of committing suicide and just need a lifestyle change. Uh, and he takes them out into the Montana wilderness on horseback for 41 days. Mm. And they do everything from yoga to working out to wrestling cattle, um, and it's it's the purpose is to 41 days is to get them over their bad habits and do an entire renaissance or recreation of the human being to push them onto the edge of discovering who they really are. And um, they do ice baths and uh, they they also participate in Native American rituals. So they actually work with a shaman and they go into the sweat houses and the, excuse me, the sweat lodges mm. and have those experiences. And then after the 41 day program, they get them into internships and uh, they check in on them. But it's a it's a really incredible organization. They reached out to us. Um, so we provide wine for their uh, annual gala and we're going to continue to support them in any way that we can to help at risk uh, veterans cool yeah. yeah sounds like an amazing program yeah yeah, yeah. serious shit yeah. serious shit serious wine too yeah, <laughs> yeah. beautiful stuff yeah. um so, and i love the label yeah, i appreciate the, the, it thank the, you yeah the label's awesome it's um i've just never seen one quite like that we like to be unique you know uh, so. and, and you hit it uh, and we also want people to have a conversation around it while they drink it so if it's not the artwork it's all the information in regards to I want people to understand when they're drinking the wine of what they're tasting and why they're tasting it. So the soils are an incredible part of it. When we harvested it, you know, the native fermentations, how much oak we use. And we also do a lot of stem inclusion. I'm a huge fan of stem inclusion, always has been. Um, the Roma's Vineyard that we'll be tasting later on is 100% whole cluster. We'll taste it right now. Yeah. So which one, which one first, Golden Fleece or Roma's? Roma's, Roma, Roma's for sure. This is Chris Cottrell's favorite part of the show. When we're drinking wine and pouring wine and not talking. Right. Thanks, Chris. <laughs> Does he actually give you shit about that? Well, when you go on, uh, if if you're a guest on the Bedrock Conversations, right. Chris's, Chris's podcast, you taste before, but he doesn't want you tasting on this. He doesn't like the sand. So, of course, me being the good person that I am, the first thing I did was just made the sounds of tasting like... <laughs> <laughs> right into the, just to like break it down 
Because why not? Why not? Yeah. Because yeah. oh, there's a rule. Okay, let me figure out how to break it. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just which an, is why I wouldn't have lasted very long at the, the wick. Rule. No, you would not. Have. No. Well, then, right. So, <laughs> I need to give you a little bit of history with with this wine. So, uh, after the, after the Palmire internship on New Year's Day of 2016, okay. um, my parents that. are in Europe visiting my sister, and. Uh, my wife, then my girlfriend, was on wine jobs, and she was looking through some stuff. She goes, hey, William Selliam has an internship uh, position available because they were advertising super, super early on. I'm like, send my resume out. Let's do it. I get a phone call a couple days later from the HR representative, uh, and she told me, she goes, hey, GW, um, thank you so much for your application. Our owner, John Dyson, who's a Vietnam veteran, really wants to hire a veteran, and um, he would love to meet you. So I go in, I interview for an internship, and then I get called up by John Dyson and Jeff Mangahas, and he, he asked me, like, with all my experience, why am I applying for an internship? I say, that's the only way I can get into this industry. I've, I've tried everything else. And he goes, well, we're going to offer you a full-time position. And that's how I got the job at, at William Sillian. But every, what, was the, what was the job they offered you? A seller worker. Right. Yes, just a seller worker. Seller worker A. Right. And then he was a seller worker B. Right. That's when they trained him on the forklift, right? Yeah. <laughs> Buzzing around. Right, exactly. B for buzzing. Right. The electric forklifts. Yeah, the, uh, the William Selliam experience was, it was super great. I got to work with incredible fruit, incredible growers, um, incredible winemaking techniques. You know, like who knew that making Pinot and dairy tanks like was a thing and that it made, you know, made great wine. And, uh, but every spring, nobody ever wanted to go up to the Anderson Valley Pinot Fest. So I'd never even heard of the Anderson Valley. I was like, Alexander Valley? No, no, Anderson Valley. Well, way up north. And uh, so I raised my hand. I said, I'll go up to this place called the Anderson Valley. This is in 2016. And I poured there every single year, 16, 17, and 18. And then I left for my new job and started the wine label in 19. But um, so I went up to the Anderson Valley and was absolutely enamored by it. I uh, just, the, the culture that like seeing that guys were still just wearing overalls and you know, speaking this like weird pigeon language and um, the wines were really expressive and it was, it was just different than the Russian river Valley. And uh, I fell in love with it. And in 2018 I was up, uh, they were doing the uh, Pinot Fest at Camp Navarro and I was up there with Sean uh, Adamovich, uh, who's my barrel salesman as, as well. And uh, Dean Carroll was the guest uh, farmer. He was the guest speaker, guest grower. And he was talking about this site up at 1,860 feet. This guy was an Alaskan bush pilot for 20 years. He was landing on glaciers. He had, the, the guy has had a great life. He's, he's in his 80s now and still farms the vineyard entirely by himself. And um, I, I knew at that moment when I started the wine label that he was going to be the first person that I, I reached out to. And so I did reach out to them. And a couple of days later, after I reached out, and this is now in 2019, I had to go and have an interview with his wife, Susie, about my intentions of what was my intentions of this fruit. And she, she like wanted to, pick... to date their daughter or something. <laughs> yeah, no, <laughs> for your intentions uh -huh. with my Yeah, it was fruit. almost like that. It was almost like getting interviewed for on, on a first date. And uh, they really liked where I wanted to take the vineyard and the style of wine that I wanted to make. And it, it made a, a, uh, a great partnership. And so I took four tons. I still get the same rows as I did in 2019. And it's such a crazy sight because it sits so high up in elevation that it's, it's super cold in the morning and it takes a super long time to warm up and then it's warm nights. So when we harvested this on October the 7th, it was 65 degrees on a biodynamic fruit day, full moon, all right? And, um, but 
the stems are lignifying before they even get fully through verasion. And by the time you pick at 22 and a half, 23 bricks in October, the stems are petrified. They are brown, like just sticks. And mm. so it's like, you know what? This vineyard is telling us that we can get away with the whole cluster without, right. you know, we can have the stemminess, but we don't have to have the greenness. And so I I originally got turned on to 100% whole cluster when I had some old bottles of Domaine du Jacques that Sean provided for me because he was an intern uh, at Domaine du Jacques. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah, to say the least. Make that louder and bigger. Yeah, that's. Wow. Hardy, are you out there, Hardy? Are you listening? <laughs> so, uh, you know, I wouldn't say there was always ten percent to thirty percent whole cluster in the wines, but some of the best wines that I was that I enjoyed that we were making were the hundred percent whole cluster wines that we were using as blending components. Mm-hmm. But I preferred those wines, and I also preferred um, because hear that little secret. <laughs> came out the little right. wine making right Pull, peel back the layers peel back the magicians layers. telling their secrets of William Selliam right, exactly right. Uh, <laughs> you won't get in trouble we'll get in trouble GW don't worry <laughs> well I think I think the whole cluster uh, you know the percentage of whole cluster is uh, you know is a common common yeah, no, thing no, right no. <laughs> uh, but uh, I prefer I preferred the whole, 100% whole cluster and um, I also there's a method that um we would do there is we would throw in fishing waders and we would foot stomp the fruit as until the cap formed and then we would move to punch downs well with 100% whole cluster you can't do that because it's just the the cap is just way too too hard and so um we did some trials in regards to doing uh, wades uh foot stomping throughout the entire process of the fermentation and i preferred those so i took what i liked from my experiences at william Simon and i applied them to to my wine label and so romas is the epitome of of what i love which is 100 percent whole cluster and it's foot stomped three times a day throughout the entirety of the the fermentation and it's on native yeast and the crazy thing about the native yeast that we have so are you, you're ferment are you, you gotta be fermenting in like tea bins or something to yeah. do okay yeah well uh romas i fermented in a one ton uh, fermentation tank and then i also did it in a uh, a three tonner and um the, f- the crazy thing about the ferment but this one yeah was a, just a one ton ferment the rest went into the the cote de boot blend um this was 100 whole cluster in a one ton fermenter and uh the ferment finished in 14 days but it never got warmer than 72 degrees <laughs> The, and it, when it came in, yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. So the yeast that we have finishes, but it never gets hot. And the great thing about not having a hot ferment, especially with this wine, is it's not the heat is not extracting bitter seed tannin or stem tannin. And so mm. I don't know if I went to another facility, if if whatever the yeast is, the indigenous yeast at that winery is, if it would work the same way. Right. But at Motion Vineyards, with whatever the, the yeast strain that's in the winery, it just works with, with these types of wines. The interesting thing will be is over time how it changes because as different clients come in, there's going to be different yeast all exposed. Yeah. So when, that, I mean, be... the science, right? It, at least what's starting the fermentation is probably coming from the vineyard. Right. Yes. Right? Right. And then and then what finishes is whatever's in the building. Right. Well, I mean, maybe, even... Maybe not. I mean, there were those studies... Of, few years ago um that that thing whatever starts the fermentation isn't what is finishing. not what's finishing it, well know? yeah because that yeast that's typically in the vineyard dies off after two yeah, percent but alcohol. or even even on cultured yeast they were saying that that mm-hmm. even cultured yeast added may start the fermentation but it's not finishing it interesting so 
Um, the rumor, rumor has it because when Rick Motion built the winery in 2005, Mary Edwards is one of the first clients there, right. and she was there for a couple of years. And it is widely believed that it is the yeast strain that she used that is the dominant yeast strain in the winery. Sprinkled it all around the building. Yeah. <laughs> That's just that's the legend. They call it the ghost of Mary Edwards. That is the that is the legend of the yeast strain. I mean, if that's... you're going to be haunted by anything, that's probably a good thing to be haunted by. <laughs> I, I got to leave out. I can't do it. I can't do it. Um, uh, well, that's um, that's a delicious wine. So, yeah. can, oh, I know what I wanted to ask is, can you explain these soils? I've not heard of these two soils types. Oh, so Bearwalla Wolfie and Casbone Woolly are. Uh, sandstone loam soils that are just classified uh, in regards to the depth of the soils and also the slope of the soils. And they're predominantly on the eastern ridge and the western ridge. So pr primarily on the e eastern ridge, like Reese Vineyard, they have a block called, or they have a vineyard called Bear Wallow because of the Bear Wallow soils. Um, and that's primarily on the eastern uh, steep slopes is, and then Casbone Woolly is pro predominantly on the western ridge. But basically, are these boot words? Are these bootling words? No, they're they're actual soil series. Okay, you can look it up on the U.S. <laughs> Geological Survey. Okay, I mean, I was sort of being facetious, but not entirely. <laughs> Sounds like it could be boot. It, it does. It, it definitely does. <laughs> yeah, Bear, Bear Wallow Wolfy and Casbone Woolly soils. But yeah, they're they're what saying is I don't like your mother. <laughs> <laughs> And then in regards to the the uh, the the Chenin Blanc from Solano County, that's on Conejo soil right. series, but that's alluvial. And then um, I just put limestone on on the Jurassic Park because people understand what what limestone is. So, all right. So now I'm pouring the Golden Fleece. Um, really, a totally different, different color. Completely, color. completely different. And these are both nineteen. These are both 19. So this is your second vintage with these places or first vintage? No, this is the first. And Golden yeah. Fleece was uh, the first vintage off of Golden Fleece that was ever produced was an 18. So it's a it's a new vineyard. It's a younger vineyard, hence why I used uh, less whole cluster. Um, but the farming is, um, is really intense. So Justin Miller... Um, he's been, his, he has a winery called Garden Creek, uh, Ranch and Vineyards. And, uh, he's now on the third generation of the same farmers that live on the property and they go up and the, the, his kids went to school with the Pratt family, not the Platt family, but the Pratt family. And they, their grandfather, great grandfather invented artificial laughter for television. And so they bought this ranch. Um, but their kids go to the Sonoma Country Day mm. together. So they had this vineyard that they're like, hey, do you want to farm it? And so he planted it to 115667 Calera clones because he asked the locals around, hey, what grows best in the Anderson Valley? And that's what they suggested. But he, he farms ab absolutely meticulously. And um, because of the stress on the vines, um, where it's located, there's a constant wind that comes through this bowl. And it's, it's hotter days, but colder nights. Uh, there's no disease pressure on them but because of the steep slopes we have to pick by hand we have to use a crawler um but he also farms it to one cluster per shoot and it's cane pruned so that energy and that concentration goes into it so it's not like we're over extracting it it's not like we're using sonier to get the, that extraction it's just the 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 energy of the vines that's concentrating all of its energy into mm. you know a few clusters you probably don't get the lignification no in the same no, way no no absolutely not and also because 
and there's not as much water. So Roma's Vineyard was dry farmed. There's he pl- not as much water? No. So the pond last year in the 2020, the, we had zero water oh, in the pond. Okay. So he has water in this pond, but it it, it dries up. Um, but that also, I feel, like puts concentration in the vines as well. That, I'm you sure. know, there's just, there's not much water. Whereas Roma's Vineyard, he planted, Gene Carroll planted the rootstock five years prior to grafting on the pomard. So he mm. let the rootstock establish its roots and that's why he's able to get away with dry farming. But Justin is um, on his way to achieving a, a zero carbon footprint for this this vineyard. That's his goal is that he believes that his, his kids are going to be taking over the business in the future and he wants, he wants to give them something and the best way to do that is by farming responsibly. There you go. Yeah, I, I mean, you know, that's there's not a lot of rain out there. There's not a lot of water out there. Right. Well, you there's know? there's hardly any wells. Right. Out there. There's even there's even hardly. the Boonville water, the city water is contaminated and they're working on like bringing in water from from the What's state. What's contaminated with? I, I forget. I, I I they they did this entire presentation on on the local water in Boonville and uh like it's like in a state of emergency in regards to like this program of bringing in hmm. like fresh water. Wow. Yeah. That sucks. It's not the only place in California dealing with stuff like that. No. You know, Cambria uh, on the coast is out of water. They just don't have water. So, like, if you go to a restaurant in Cambria, you they don't serve you water without asking. And, you know, as they get into the summer, like, restaurants will stop using dishes. Right. Because they don't want to have to wash. There's not enough water to wash dishes. Right. So you I mean, get you get plastic silverware. Fort, Fort Bragg was like yeah, that. Mendocino. Yeah. Mendocino has nothing but water towers right. all over the place. Right. Yeah. I mean, you know, water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink. It's the, you're on the coast. There's not a lot of groundwater, and when you do, have, it's you know, it's got salt in it. Uh, not good. Desal, desal, desal. Yeah. Tell your representative of the California Coastal Commission, don't deny desalination plant permits. What the fuck are you thinking? Sorry. Well, and no, that's an even that's totally, something that, totally something that just happened that. in Southern California. Have yeah. you ever watched the documentary Rivers of the Lost Coast? No. It's about it, it's about fly fishing back in the fifties and sixties on the Russian River, the Eel River, and the Smith, I think so. the Smith yeah, River, Smith. and we, what the fish protection projects that really are in the Anderson Valley because you have the Navarre River watershed right there, and then you have the Guala River. It, it's the they're running out of water for the, the, the for the steelhead runs, but back in the in the fifties and sixties, the rivers were thriving with with long. steelhead right. all summer long, and so that's a, that's a big like Pinot Fest every single year during the tech conference. There's a big section discussing the waterways and how we can help you know save the steelhead and save our waterways yeah. in Mendocino County. Rivers of the Lost Coast is on Amazon. Yeah. There we go. Right. Check it out. Perfect. It's, an, it's awesome. Yeah. Great documentary. Wow. Yeah. That was a lot. That was a lot. Can I ask you what GW stands for or you don't want to say? No, it's 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 fine. Um my, my name So you don't want to say No, it's so my name <laughs> it's it's Mark Grant Whelan Lucier. My name at birth was supposed to be Grant Whelan Lucier, but my mom's father, who's a, a traditionalist, said that the first son should be named after the father. So they named me Mark, and they sandwiched Grant next to Whelan as my two middle names. But then my mom didn't want me to be called Marky or Junior as a nickname, so they nicknamed me GW. GW. That's Grant Whelan. And what was your nickname in the service? Uh, my cadre uh, called me Lucifer uh, <laughs> back in military school because Lucier, Lucier, yeah. Lucifer. I'll see that one coming. Yeah. Um, and then. G-Dub, GW, it's fine. Yeah. Once you're the captain, 
you know, it's, it was certain. Yeah, anymore, yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah you're right. The, the, the thing is, is a lot of people just refer to you in military college and your peers as your last name because your last name right. was on your chest right. on, on the right hand side. Uh, and then, yeah, and then, you know, as an officer, all the enlisted men had to call me sir. Or, right. you know, what was your nickname in the military? Sir. 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 Right. It's just sir. <laughs> I do get a kick out of the fact you had to start your uniforms until they stood up. Wow. Yeah, it's, it's um it's that just, those were the old days before uh the kind of the wash and wear pre-pleated uniforms that we have today and suede boots like we were still using black leather boots and yeah, it, it the majority of my time was uh, I should have studied more, but uh <laughs> I didn't want to get I didn't want to get yelled at so I just concentrated on on my room being super clean and my uniforms being super you know, it's perfect. Just perfect. Yeah. The, the one question I didn't ask about your, you know, academy days and you know military college days. You went from living in Saint Helena to like Vermont, northern Vermont. Yeah. What was that first winter like? That first winter was absolutely insane. I'm talking negative. I've never experienced negative thirty degrees before. I remember they're like, "Oh, it's five degrees out. You can still go run outside." <laughs> like with them, yeah. We had a field house, but it, you know, at the field house, you, it just people running all over the place and stuff like that. Um, as a freshman, you would have to wake up. You'd be the first one to wake up if you were assigned to do morning calls. And we had um, Admiral Dewey went to went to Norwich, and we have his old um, mast that has signal flags on it. And so the regimental commander determines, depending on the weather, what the uniform is. And so we would have to run outside as a freshman, look at the uniform flags. And you're, I've never felt my nostril hairs freeze. And then you come back inside and your nose begins to bleed because of how cold it is. And then we would have to do these morning calls to wake up the upperclassmen on the floors. And we'd be like, it'd be go something like this, like, sirs, good morning, sirs. This is the outstanding Norwich University Delta Company, sirs. Today is the 21st day in May in the year of our Lord, 2000. Three, the uniform of the day is X, Y, and Z. And we'd have to say that the uniform, what was to eat, um, how many days till the junior ring ceremony, how many days till graduation, how many days till commissioning. We had to have this all in our heads. And we'd go up and down the hallways just repeating this for 30 minutes uh, to wake up the upperclassmen so that they would wake up, you know, shave, get dressed into their uh, PT gear, their physical training gear, and go out to morning formation. Um yeah, there were some great memories. I mean, one of the best uh, one of the best memories in wintertime is as a, a they don't do this anymore, but the uh, it was called the UP five hundred. The UP meant upper parade ground, and um, after the first major snowstorm in the wintertime, the upperclassmen, juniors and seniors, would pretty much uh, make a steeplechase uh, around the upper parade ground track, which in um, like seven laps was two miles. Yeah. And so they'd put up barriers and they'd make all these like snowballs. And then the sophomores at 10 o'clock at night ran outside and all we were allowed to wear were goggles, shoes, and we'd use our pistol belts with a canteen to act as a cup. And we had to run naked outside on the upper parade ground while snowballs were getting thrown at us, <laughs> jumping over like barriers. And it was, it, I mean, it's just, it's stuff like that, 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 you know, they're great memories, but they're, I don't think they're allowed anymore because they're you know, essentially hazing. <laughs> <laughs> but that that's a, that was a sophomore tradition uh, that we had was the uh, UP 500. You know, I think the year after I ran it, they they stopped it. Well, you got to, so you never got you got to do it. Yeah. Well, you got to do it, but you never you got, got to got be to, on the other right, the, right. the throwing. End I don't of think it. I ever right. got it, got to throw it now. Hey, um, one last question. Mm -hmm. So the 2021 that's here has no 
uh, foil or wax? Does that mean that you've made the transition or are you still? No, still I'm still. Waxing? So we just transitioned to uh, we're going to be working with uh, a company in Wisconsin that actually is making a beeswax base for us um so that it's softer and easier to get into but we just bottled this the 2021 on friday so i haven't taken the time to sit down and 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 wax them but i wanted to share it with you guys just so that we have two shannon blocks um yeah yeah but we're we're transitioning to beeswax so save the bees yeah right on sam you must be needing to shout out the uh, marty o'reilly show on july 3rd it's uh we're getting it's gonna be a sellout we're selling tickets fast um so you go to marty o'reilly.com uh o-r-e before i and marty o'reilly uh o-r-e-i-l-l-y um it's vinyl sunday but it's at a separate location in a vineyard uh all about the music Two, you know we got two bands i'm gonna announce the second band this week um uh, food wine ice cream it's tie-dye. this week no it's uh, july 3rd no two you weeks you can announce it oh because it's this week oh right uh because this or is maybe, coming out after yeah. no no i will it's uh don and tony angelo you know, Sante. yeah exactly yeah, don, uh, tony gibson don yeah. angelo Sant with uh michael fescus on cello she's great um, so it'll be super cool mellow start the night and then marty o'reilly will come out and we'll get weird and and then Sun goes down and you can go. I don't know if the fireworks are going to be on the third or the fourth, but uh, we'll be out of there by the time you know the sun go, the sun goes down in Sonoma. So um, Sunday afternoon, vinyl Sunday comes back. Two hundred people. Can you uh, buy tickets at the door? Buy tickets? Yeah, I think if, unless we sell out beforehand, uh, you can buy tickets at the door. Okay. No. Um, any other shout outs? We're recording on the, the National Observance of Juneteenth. Uh, I just read this article. It's, it's not wine. It's it's whiskey. But it was about uh, a guy named Nearest Green, who was a you know freed slave, um, who taught Jack Daniels how to make whiskey. Hmm. And then so somebody has come in uh, and um, created you know went and bought the property that. Um, that Jack Daniels and Nearest Green were working on when when Nearest Green taught him that, and they've uh, started a distillery called Nearest Green Whiskey. Uh, so I'm gonna buy a bottle, see how it is. Yeah. But uh, the the difference between between bourbon and Kentucky whiskey and Tennessee whiskey is that Tennessee whiskey is filtered through like sweetened maple charcoal, mm. and the history of that goes back to West Africa. In West Africa, almost all the water and everything charcoal was used either as fuel or as filter so yeah. like the history of tennessee whiskey comes goes through, to africa you know, from the you know the yeah. people who were captured in africa and sold yeah. into the slave trade wow. um so it was a it was a cool article i read yesterday i wanted to give that one a, a shout out the, it sounds like the people who started nearest green don't need any uh winemakers podcast bump they uh <laughs> they are well funded um but it was a it was a cool thing so yeah. and there's a podcast listener here right now Having a tasting. Oh. Excellent. Shout out Russell Devine. Awesome. So, yeah. Yeah. Awesome. That was GW. one o'clock. Is it one o'clock already? It is almost uh, close. Ten, to one. Ten to one. Right. GW, thank you very much. Thanks for being on the show. It. Thank you so much. Yeah. Let's do one one more. How do you get uh how do you find Touch. you in social media? How do you find you uh on by the wine? Yeah, we're on Instagram, Lucia Wine Co. And uh once again, uh you can purchase the wine on the purchase page of www.luciawineco.com. Cool. And that's L U S S I E. R. Correct. Right. Yeah.
Lucifer. Lucifer. If you're <laughs> if you're a freshman and at the Wick. Right. The Wick. <laughs> it's a good times. Yeah. And uh, check out uh, Heroes and Horseback. Oh, Heroes, Heroes and Horses. And horses. Yeah, that uh, sounds like an amazing organization. So it if really you is. have some some funds, throw that way. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Um, uh, drink more Chenin Blanc. Um, right. And Anderson Valley Pinot Noir. Yeah, Cote de Boone. Cote de Boone. Cote de Boone. The Anderson Valley's uh, going, like that, coming I, up in a big way. I totally. like that dictionary, the Boone dictionary. Dude. In Boomville. Boonling. 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 So they could talk shit about you without understanding. Why not? Right. Which sounds like every day you've ever been in a in a vineyard if you don't speak Spanish. So. <laughs> right. Well, right. I mean, my entire life. My grandmother and her sisters would sit around and speak in English, and then they'd start speaking in Italian and go back to English. And we figured out very quickly that they were either talking about us or somebody in the else in right, the room. Right. Um, so the same thing with the in the vineyard with Spain, Spanish. Right. And actually, if you do speak Spanish, it doesn't mean you're going to have any less shit talked about you. No, and just, no you, you just understand mean, it more. Exactly right? You have right. a chance to say something back. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you for listening. Yes, subscribe, absolutely. review. Yep. Buy some Lucier Pinot Noir. And apparently, GW makes Smart Noir. idea. Who knew? <laughs> Who knew? Well, we know now. Yeah, we know now. All right, everybody. Talk to you next week.